Do you like wearing a nice vest? I do. I'm a vest guy. I love a nice vest. Well, if you are a vest person, you like wearing vests, then I have really good news for you. Dr. Wayne Hayes is a former NASA scientist. He has developed a vest that can help you lose 500 calories just by wearing it. According to Steve Smith of MedicalDaily.com, this vest is designed to be stored in the freezer and then you wear it twice a day for 60 to 90 minutes. Now, what kind of freezer vest can help you burn calories? Smith writes, studies have found that cold temperatures trigger the fuel-efficient, fat-burning brown fat, which is the good fat in our bodies. I knew I had some good fat in there somewhere. Just wanted to encourage you. You do too. There's some good fat in there. The good fat in our bodies. This vest that Hayes has created, what it does is it uses mild, strategic exposure to cold. It puts cold strategically on your body. And that cold is supposed to trigger the fat-burning process. And what does he call his vest? Well, he calls his vest the cold shoulder. There you go. Have you ever given someone a cold shoulder? Now, I'm not talking about a fat-burning freezer vest. I'm talking about a, a real cold shoulder. You know, that, that moment where you mildly, yet strategically, purposely ignore someone? That moment where you mildly and strategically avoid someone else who is around you? You steer clear of them? You act like they're not there? You brush them off? You keep your distance? You shun them? If we talk about it in social circles, giving the cold shoulder is usually seen as something that's rude or selfish or inconsiderate or condescending, maybe even a little bit stuck up. Ironically, though, as Christians, there are times that we are supposed to give the cold shoulder. When are those times? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to help us answer that question. And the language that he uses in order to help us answer that question is the kind of language that really upgrades the cold shoulder into the frozen shoulder. And so we'll be looking at the frozen shoulder this morning in Titus chapter 3, verse 9. Paul writes to his friend Titus, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. Flood victims in our community and in our state are experiencing what it means to have to avoid and steer clear of things. The South Carolina Emergency Management Division released some instructions on household cleanup and household recovery, and it included the following statement. Assume everything touched by flood water is contaminated and will have to be disinfected. Everything. Assume everything is contaminated. Imagine that in just a little while after you leave church, you go home, and there's an official standing out in your driveway when you get to the house, and the official comes up and he says, look, I'm really sorry, but, but everything in your house has been contaminated, and a good deal of it is probably going to have to be either thrown out or destroyed. Everything. Your wedding pictures, your children's birthday pictures, 
your grandchildren's baby pictures, your great-grandmother's quilt, your grandfather's pocket watch, all of your clothes, your furniture, your shoes, the plates and the glasses and the mugs, the electronics, the appliances, every autograph piece of memorabilia that you have, everything, all your tools, everything contaminated. Destined for the trash, destined for the dumpster, or destined to be destroyed. That is what thousands of people in our community and in our state have experienced over the last 15 days. Literally everything that they have has been contaminated. They have had to go into their homes with protective gear on. Because the pictures that they once loved, the, the pictures that they have cherished for so long are now contaminated. They can't even go in and, and pick those things up. And so they're having to avoid the things that they own, the things that they cherish, the things that they love, because those things are now contaminated. For months, we are going to have the opportunity to keep helping thousands of people like that. There's going to be a lot of opportunities for us to keep ministering to people whose, whose lives and homes were contaminated by these floods. And the reality is, for all the days that those of us in this room will have left on this earth, we will have even more opportunities to show love, to serve, to help in the tragedies and the disasters and the heartaches that haven't even happened yet. The disasters to come. And so as believers, we should always be ready to love. We should always be ready to show kindness. We should be ready to, to show kindness and to love those that we know and those that we don't know and those that we will never see. In other words, there's, there's never a Sunday, there's never a Tuesday, there's, there's never a Friday that we as believers should not be ready to glorify God by being His church. That's what He's called us to be. To be always ready to honor Him and to serve others. And one of the best ways that we can glorify God, one of the best ways that we can serve others is by not being contaminated. What kind of contamination are we talking about? We're talking about spiritual contamination. Avoiding spiritual contamination. This is what John MacArthur says about the book of Titus. He says, this is an evangelistic letter. It is telling the church how to win the world, and it wins the world around it by its own purity. So how can we reach lost people who do not know that Jesus saves or have not been saved by Jesus? Well, we do it by avoiding spiritual contamination. We, we do it by giving a frozen shoulder to bad theology and bad doctrine. Well, how in the world will we know what's bad and, and what's good? Well, Paul helps us. He gives us some filters. The first filter he gives there is what? Foolish controversies. Foolish controversies, absurd investigations, ridiculous messages, useless debates. An interesting day happened in the life of John the Baptist, a, a real interesting moment in his life. The official earthly ministry of Jesus had just begun. And some of John's disciples were talking to a Jew one day. They were having a discussion about purification. Now, we have no earthly idea exactly the details of what kind of purification they were talking about. But in the middle of that discussion, 
John's disciples turned to John and they asked him a question and they brought up baptism in the middle of their question. And so it seems like maybe their discussion was over whose water was really God's water. Whose water is really pure and whose water is not pure. So are the baptisms that are happening around John the Baptist, are those the purified baptisms of God? Or are the baptisms happening around Jesus the, the purified baptisms of God? And so John turns and he, he gives his friends some pretty detailed responses. And amidst that, he uses this sentence, John 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. John says, guys, y'all are wasting your time. You're chasing after the wind. You are in a useless debate, a useless discussion about trivial material that you don't even need to be going after. Don't waste your time trying to make a big name for our ministry. That is absurd. That's ridiculous. That's foolish. He says what we need to do is stay focused on the glory of God that has appeared in Jesus Christ. He says we need to stick to the message about the Messiah. We don't need to stray from there. The word that Paul uses here for foolish is where we get our word moron. And so in some ways, what he is saying is this. Look, Titus, I want you to tell everybody to avoid moronic debates. Avoid moronic fighting over every little thing. Now listen, the truth is, there are some religious investigations that are helpful. There are some religious debates that are very helpful and very needed. But what Paul's saying here is this. We need to avoid the kind of new and exciting investigations that have found some unique X somewhere on a map, and now we know what the Bible really says. Those are the things we need to watch out for. We need to be careful about infatuated debates, about numbers and questions and symbols and pictures in the Old Testament if those conversations do not direct us to the fact that the New Testament it's a book of those Old Testament promises that have been kept. In other words, be careful with the symbols and the meanings if they don't drive you back to Jesus. We need to avoid the, the kind of conversations that are pushy and arrogant when it comes to church and religion and morality that have very little reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says we need to steer clear. We need to avoid those types of things. We need to give a, a frozen shoulder to foolish talk about things that do not direct us to the person of Jesus. The second filter he gives in verse 9 is genealogies. It is a very sad and very disgusting reality, but our local and our national officials have had to give warnings to look out for scammers in the middle of our flooding. There are people who will lie and be deceptive for the purpose of, of gaining money or gaining personal information in the middle of, of people losing everything that they have. Well, back in the times of Titus around the island of Crete, they had a, a pretty good scam going there too. You see, there were some folks that had created this, this real fancy system it probably involved dates and, and times and hours and symbols and hidden documents and, and secret meanings. And, and all of it pointed back to a little family tree that really, really showed who was right with God. That really showed who was in God's family. 
And what they would do is they would use this fancy family tree and, and they would try to gain prominence and position in the life of the church. They would try to gain prominence and position in the community. They might even, for a price, look up your name in their fancy system and just see maybe if you're really on God's list. Listen, some of us know there is a lot of benefit in genealogy. There's, there's a lot of benefit in, in looking at family trees. In fact, the Bible has a whole lot of genealogy in it, right? Even the, the human family tree of Jesus is in there. But the reality is this. A person's family tree does not save them. They're not rescued by their genealogy. They're not rescued by their human family tree. These words from Jesus, they never lose their impact. John 14, no one comes to the Father but through me. No one. Jesus is, is amazingly clear. And see, for us, if we were to, to use that in our language, we would say not through baptism, not through church membership, not through church attendance, but only through Jesus. As we said last week, it's, it's easy to join the church. It is very difficult to follow after Jesus Christ. The way you come to Jesus is by believing in him and trusting in him and relying on him and clinging to him as the only hope, the ultimate hope that you have for salvation and for satisfaction in the life to come but also in today. Jesus said, nobody comes to the Father but through me. You see, what was happening, there were some, some folks swirling around on the island of Crete and they were saying, well, my great-great-grandpappy, he was right with God. And because my great-great-grandpappy was right with God, well, that makes me right with God. Now, that may sound a little bit foolish to us, but let me tell you that in, in a couple of a decades of doing ministry, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a conversation with someone where they say something like this. Well, you know, preacher, I know I'm not in church like I should be, but you know, my grandmama, she took me when I was little, and I know she's praying for me. Sometimes I just want to go, I don't know what that means. Or the person that says, well, look, I know I'm in my 17th marriage, and I know that I'm being investigated for running illegal gambling for the last 35 years, but, but you know, I'll never forget the day, preacher, that old Bubba Ray baptized me up there in, in the baptistry. You see, this, this picture of salvation is so different than some of the religious tangents that we chase after. And 2,000 years ago on the island of Crete, there were some folks that got caught up in the worst scam known to man. And it's not just 2,000 years ago on the island of Crete. It's, it's today on the island of, of Casey in West Columbia and North America and, and other parts of the world. The worst scam ever that you can fall victim to is the scam of religious feelings instead of saving faith. Saving faith is in Jesus. Saving faith is an obsession with the love of Jesus because he has shown so much love to us. Paul says, give a frozen shoulder to foolish genealogies. Don't chase after those things. Avoid the conversations that your faith is through your family tree. Next filter he gives in verse 9 is strife. The word for strife here is a word that means quarreling. It means contention. It means wrangling. Look, wranglers might be real comfortable genes, but wrangling in the church is real uncomfortable and mean. You, know, you, you want to avoid those things. Now, to be clear, contention in the church is not always wrong. 
There are times when contention happens, and, and it's okay. Adrian Rogers wisely said this, It is better to be divided by truth than to be united in error. It is better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. See, there is a type of contention. There's a, a type of contending that's okay if the contending is for the honor of the gospel and for the good of God's church. That is different contention. That's not the contention Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about the type of strife and contention that's full of personal glory. William Barclay said this, This kind of strife is the contention which is born of envy, ambition, the desire for prestige, and place and prominence. This kind of strife is the kind of quarreling that says, Well, I have to find a way to make the attention come to me. It's the kind of strife that says, well, I should be respected in the community. It's the kind of strife that says, well, I should have my name in the program and it better be spelled correctly. It's the kind of strife that says, you know what, my foolish controversy should have a monthly class. It should have a, a weekly forum. It's the kind of strife that says, you know what, my genealogy, my family tree, it needs to be put on a plaque or a statue and put out somewhere in the community. It's the kind of strife that's not good for us. This is what Jesus said. Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. What does it mean to deny yourself? Well, sometimes denying yourself means that you hand the TV remote to your spouse and you let them watch whatever they want to watch. Or I might say for my home, you hand the remote to your sister or your brother and you let them watch whatever you want to watch or whatever they want to watch. Sometimes denying yourself means you let your kid have the last donut. I'm just meddling now, right? I mean, that's, that's way too hard. Maybe I'm speaking on behalf of myself. Sometimes denying yourself means that you pay for the food and the, for the person who's behind you in line at the drive-thru. You know, some of you have had this happen to you. We've had it happen to us, you know. You get up to pay, and whoever was in front, they, they paid for you. Sometimes that's denying yourself. It's, it's looking for a way to serve others. But there's also a way of denying yourself that looks a little bit different. Sometimes denying yourself means that you take the TV remote, and you turn the TV off, and you turn to your spouse, or you turn to your child, and you have the conversation that you'd really rather avoid. Sometimes you throw away the last donut because you've seen in your child a, a selfish movement toward gluttony and you realize it's becoming very bad for their health. Sometimes denying yourself means that you go through the drive-thru less and you go out to eat less and you take that money and you invest in the work of the gospel in the church or you take that money and you invest in the work of the gospel in overseas missions or you take that money and you invest it in the gospel in the work of flood relief. See, sometimes following after Jesus and denying yourself involves simple things and sometimes they're hard. But we've been called to do the simple and the hard thing. In fact, if we're going to follow Jesus, Jesus says that we must deny ourselves. So if we choose to not do that, if we reject what Jesus asks us to do, if we reject following him, then this is what happens. Strife will energize us to fight for our way over God's way. 
strife will, will fuel us, will feed us. And before long, we're not even thinking about what would honor God. We're just doing whatever we want to do. That kind of strife, Paul says, you need to give that kind of strife the frozen shoulder. You, you need to avoid it. You need to stay away. Fourth filter that he gives in verse 9 is disputes about the law. The word for disputes here is a word connected to physical combat. You remember when Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Tin Man first met the Cowardly Lion and the Wizard of Oz? Remember that scene? Remember what he said to him? I'm so excited about this. Put him up, put him up, put him up. Which one of you first? I'll fight you both together if you want. I'll fight you with one paw tied behind my back. I'll fight you standing on one foot. I'll fight you with my eyes closed. I mean, I couldn't just read that. You know, you got to do the voice, right? And do you remember what happened right after that? Right after that, Dorothy hit him on the nose and he started crying. And then she said to him, my goodness, what a fuss you are making. Paul's writing about some fussers. He's writing because there were some folks around the churches on the island of Crete, some, some folks that Titus was having to deal with. And they were always walking around with a chip on their shoulder. Put them up, put them up, put them up. They're, they were always wanting to fight about something, always wanting to argue about something. They were creating fuss about the old traditions that the church was no longer following. And they were creating fuss about the new fads that the church would not follow. They would create arguments about what version was going to be used in the Pew Bible. Or they would create arguments about why there wasn't more information being posted on the church's social media pages. And of course, they weren't really fighting about those things in 2,000 years ago, but, but you kind of get the drift of what's going on. There was fussing. There was arguing. There was disputing. Not over things that were honoring to God, not even over things that were good for the church, but, but just fussing to be fussing. Here's the hard, sober truth, though. Sometimes fussing and disputing will draw a crowd. You can draw a crowd to yourself or, or to your church or, or to a political candidate or to a, you know, a moral idea. You can draw a crowd with some fussing. Albert Barnes wrote this. There is scarcely anything so certainly and effectually arrest a revival of religion as such a disposition to dispute and to make proselytes to particular modes of faith and of administering the ordinances of the gospel. In other words, what he says is this, nothing will stir up a crowd more toward religion or toward moralism than to stir them up toward a certain pastor or a certain church or a certain denomination or a certain candidate or a certain moral slogan or a certain mission project or a certain ministry project. Nothing will stir people up more than when you stir them up to something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we have to constantly keep singing, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, because that's our message. We don't change that message. But what was happening in the early church where there were folks out there saying, hey, we've We've got a better message. We've got a neater message. And if you don't like it, we're going to argue with you to the point that our message will be more important than the gospel. And that can't happen anymore today, right? 
Yeah, I can. It can happen on any given day, in any given church, in any given place in the world. My father went to Tanzania years and years ago on a mission project with my home church. They went to help Christians that were there and, and do some building and some ministry. And I got up this morning and read that just a few weeks ago that, that a lot of Christian churches were burned and destroyed in Tanzania. So in 30 years, 30, 40 years, some odd time, there's this movement against Christianity. One of the things that I actually read this morning on the Voice of the Martyrs website was that some of it all involved the sacrifice of animals. That the way it was noted was that some of the Muslims in the community felt like that they were the only ones who could officially slaughter animals and the Christians shouldn't do it. And so therefore, the Christians should have to buy the animals that, that they slaughter. Disputes about the law, genealogies, foolish controversies, even cross religions. Not love, not kindness, not hope, but disputes. This is what Jesus said. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, Jesus says, don't seek first to dispute and fuss and argue about foolish controversies or genealogies or strife or the law. Don't, don't seek first to do that. Seek first to strive with all that you have to make much of God's kingdom and God's rightness and God's ways. Let God's ways be what fuels your life. Paul says we need to give religious fussing the frozen shoulder. Back in the 1960s, the birds sang a song that went like this to everything, turn, turn, turn. In the first 60s, the Apostle Paul said something like this, to certain things, shun, shun, shun. Have nothing to do with them. Avoid them. Why? Look at verse 9. For they are unprofitable and worthless. This is what I love about the Bible. This is what I love about God's Word. It is not a mindless book of rules and regulations. It is a living conversation of eternal truth and magnificent history, wise principles, and satisfying hope. And the satisfying hope, the wise principle, the, the magnificent history drawn even into this moment would be this truth, that foolish genealogies and symbolic genealogies and foolish controversies and strife and fussing and arguing and disputing about the law, those things are not good for you. They're not good for you. The reason Paul says avoid them is because they're not good for you. And guess what? They're not good for the church either. And guess what? They're not good for lost people either. Why? Because they draw all the attention back to us. John told his disciples, stop fussing and discussing and debating about things that don't matter. We need to keep the attention and the focus on the Messiah, on Jesus the Christ. Paul says all these things, they're unprofitable, they're, they're worthless. They, they keep drawing you back to you. They, they teach you to believe in yourself and to trust in yourself and to rely on yourself and to cling to yourself and to cling to your ways instead of believing and trusting and relying and clinging to Jesus. And that's the opposite of what we need to do. That is not good for us. Why is it not good for us? Well, it's not good for our soul today 
but it's not good for our soul forever either. Matt Slick writes this, Have you ever lied, stolen, lusted, coveted, or been angry with someone unjustly? If you're wondering about your answer, this is uh, two-question, multiple choice. The answer A is yes. The answer B is yes. Just go ahead and check whichever box you want. Yes, we have. Second question. Have you ever offended God in any way? Again, check yes. I'll check it for you. Yes, we have. And he says this. If so, then you have sinned. Your sin is against God because you've broken his law. And then he goes on to write this. Because he is infinite, your offense to him is infinite. You know, I might offend you, but you may not know about it. <laughs> you know, I might say, you know, something crazy like your cake didn't taste that good. Okay, that would be crazy. I would never say that about anyone's cake ever. But I might offend you and you may not know about it. Or you might offend me after I've died and I really won't know about it. But an offense against God is it's infinite. He has no beginning and end. He's, he's always there. So, so the offense against him is infinite. You are not capable of appeasing an infinite God because you are a sinner. Nothing you can do will undo the damage caused by your sins. Nothing. That's, that's a sobering. Nothing you can do can undo this. But... Something has been done for you. Something has been done for you. I love how John puts it. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. I have great parents. I have great sisters. I have super brother-in-laws. I have a great wife and great kids. I have tremendous friends. I have a wonderful church. But I do not know love by human beings. I know love because Jesus Christ laid down his life for me. That's how I know what love is. Lunch is coming. You may have meetings this afternoon. Maybe you got a doctor's appointment tomorrow or next Tuesday or whenever. But, but for just a moment, listen to these next few sentences. John Bloom writes, Jesus died for the church. But for Jesus, the church is not an institution like Yale University or Apple or the United Way. Jesus did not die for an institution. He died for individuals. The church isn't even a republic like the United States of America. Jesus didn't die for a republic. He died for persons. Listen to this. Jesus died for persons with names, faces, personalities, disabilities, histories, and sins. He did that because he loves each person. Every sin Jesus bore on the cross had a name attached. They were real thoughts, real attitudes, real words, real actions. It was real anger, real lust, real evil motives, and real murders. Some of these sins were yours, and some were mine. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, he died to satisfy the penalty of your sin. Listen, that is not a foolish controversy. That is not a, a symbolic genealogy. That's not a strife or a fuss, an argument. That's not a dispute about the law. That is love. That is love. 
By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. If the message you're hearing from heaven doesn't include that, you give it a frozen shoulder. You turn away from it. You avoid it. But by all means, when you hear that the Son of God laid down his life for you, don't give that the frozen shoulder. You run. You embrace. You grab that with everything that you have. Because in that truth is your greatest hope. In that truth is your greatest joy. And in that truth, your soul will be satisfied. Let us come to Jesus. And let us keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. Because there is no one, no one like Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, some of us in our hearts and our minds, we, we know that there are some things that you want us to change, even today. And, and we're kind of like the cowardly lion towards you. We're, we're kind of trying to fight you. And so I pray, God, that you would give each of us teachable hearts, that you would help us based on what Jesus has done for us, the fact that he's laid down his life for us. Would you, would you help us to find ways right after service is over and right now and at lunch and this afternoon and tomorrow to deny ourselves? We're convinced it would be awful. We're convinced that, that putting ourselves behind you would, would somehow mess up our lives. And yet the reality is you've promised us joy and contentment and happiness in denying ourselves. So teach us now on the inside what it means to love you first and most and what it means to truly follow your precious son. Remove our chains and give us freedom. In your name we pray, amen.